Well, good morning. Um, I just thought I'd record something because this was really bothering my wife this morning, so it's, it's really bothering me. She's really upset with the current generation, how extreme they are, how they, uh, I don't know, seem to endorse unhinged ideas with unhinged behavior. But what I explained to her, it's, it's just very similar, only on a larger, more intense scale, very similar to the 50s and 60s, when we made every child scared with the doomerism of the atom bomb, they grew up into the hippies, the activists, the loved children. Look at the madness that in, uh, ensued. But fast forward to the modern era when these children were raised to not just fear war, but live through it in many cases, witness it on TV in prime time, but also afraid of nuclear war, also afraid of environmental collapse, catastrophe, societal collapse, catastrophe. Genocide was no longer a thing from the history books. It was on the History Channel and the Documentary Channel and on the news, but also in your ear telling you that you would be a victim. You are a victim. Celebrate the victim when in reality it's the survivor that should be. What do we do? Like I told my wife, I use sophistry to understand these crazy ideas, but come to realize that Jung was more prophetic than he realized. The vast majority of evil in this world can be traced to the fact that most people walk around completely unconscious, acting and thinking not about the consequences or even the reasons, the whys, the whats. But the good news is this can be solved in the matter of moments. If we can teach our children and our adults to think through these hypocrisies, think through this propaganda and see the reality that it's hope and trust that we need, not something special, uh, luxurious or rare, but something we all have that we just don't nurture. That hope, that trust, that faith, that we will overcome. The example I use, interestingly, discovered a new uh, diamond in the rough, as it were, uh, an ex-Delta Force operator, Tom Satterley. And he teaches these simple lessons. Unlike many of the uh, operators, doing podcasts, Tom tells the lessons learned. I love this one example where he talks about he had a commanding officer early on uh, that when, when, you know, when the, when the turd hit the fan, uh, he'd ask him like, hey, 
hey, uh, boss, are we gonna? I can't remember his rank, right? But hey, are we gonna? We gonna be all right? And he said that his uh, his mentor or whatever you'd want to call him, right? His commanding, not commanding officer, it tends to be like, you know, a sergeant or something. But so his mentor would say, I don't know, right? And he even said said this too. He said that was an opportunity for uh, a motivational speech, right? And he gave uh, a talk about, again, not talking about the incident, just talking about the lessons learned. He did the same thing when uh, he talked about an, having an injured man, right? That you lie to him, right? But then when someone was shocked and, uh, you know, let the cat out of the bag about how serious it was, um, he didn't lie to the soldier. He just made him realize what truly does matter instead of fixating on uh, the, uh, the hurdles. It's, it's focusing on the finish line. And uh, I think that's really the, the main takeaway in these. It's, it's, it's a comparison to listening to a podcast that's telling a story with no, no moral, no lesson. as opposed to only endeavoring to find the meaning and the message in what we do and what we say and what we consume. Everything boils down to ego. The thing that shocks me is from one of my recent books, it was uh, a cognitive scientist who ended up studying elite soldiers like this Tom Satterley, right? Delta Force, Green Berets, you name it. He said he was shocked by their, their humility, right? And he explained it that it's to get to that uber uh, elite status in anything you want to do. This is what I love that it all of these lessons all of these lessons are easily applicable to even your business situation your your health or healing situation right right and uh, I mean uh, this author that talked about you know you need to be teachable to to improve and to do better than what you would give yourself credit of being able to achieve but I think it, it goes deeper than that it's the Greek time that I harp on constantly know thyself but it's the heart of everything we're doing here it's getting to know yourself it's the Jungian shadow it's uh, Nietzsche's eternal return the Amor Fati this idea of carrying your burden right through a glass darkly uh, just yesterday it shocked me at, at how how bad it's got I've explained this before that I I've gone back to very seriously study the Bible as well as others uh, from the Western canon 
right? I've mentioned the imitation of Christ, St. John of the Cross, and Teresa Avila, and Augustine, Augustine. Because here's a perfect example. I was having a, a nice philosophy discussion with some uh, fellow sojourners. And uh, they ended up bringing up a movie from almost 20 years ago, A Scanner Darkly. And they were talking about the philosophy within. But <clears throat> I was surprised at first and then shocked uh, to discover that nobody mentioned uh, where that reference comes from. Right? Like I've said before, Hemingway took uh, many of his titles right from the Bible. It's a beautiful thing. Right? Because these turns of phrases are beautiful. There's a reason why. The King James has lasted as long as it has. Right? Because it's what Nietzsche became famous for. He was able to say more in a sentence than, than many struggled to say in an entire book. Right? It's, it's, uh, it surprised me that no one mentioned, right, the Bible illusion, right, Scanner Darkly. But it, it shocked me that when I pointed out, they didn't understand, uh, nor even really give it any thought. But they were shocked that there'd be an illusion in such an obscure place. And that's when I explained that, no, these illusions are everywhere. This is why Northrop Fry wrote uh, his books about the importance of the Bible, right? Even if you just read it as literature. It's not a failure. In fact, it'll likely inform, like for me, I see more even in authors uh, that I used to adore before, right? Uh, Carl Jung, when I learned Latin and uh, the Bible, Nietzsche, right? It just made their, their philosophies even richer. Never mind uh, Thomas Merton or Robert Lacks. Right, uh, Joseph Campbell, or Marsha McLuhan, or obviously Northrop Fry, or William Blake. Right, you can't appreciate any of this without appreciating the literature that is the Bible and many of our other canon. Like I said, it's not just the Bible, right? Arguably, even something as silly as Canterbury Tales or uh, Beowulf could even be included in that canon because of how often there could be references, but none, none so many as, as the Bible, obviously. But what is the heart of these lessons, right? Well, it seems silly, but it was really seriously misunderstood. I spoke to this, this kid who uh, was told by his professor, so much wrong about Nietzsche, it's unbelievable. But the one thing that he was told is that Nietzsche wanted to supplant Christ. Nietzsche wanted to be uh, the new Christ. And that shocks me. That, that doesn't seem like anybody's even taken a course on Nietzsche because that is not what he wanted. He wanted us to believe in the archetypes we purport to adore. That's all he wanted us to do. Right, so he said, if you're not going to believe in the archetype of the Christ, like Jung wrote about, he, Jung said it wasn't time for us to ignore 
uh, how important and profound uh, the archetype of the Christ is. Um, but Nietzsche himself realized, I think, better than, than Jung, that uh, simply reminding people of, of the beauty of having someone as example, someone who can transcend. The reason why Nietzsche thought uh, Buddhism was silly was because he didn't think anyone could, at least enough people could, transcend the selfishness of, uh, of human experience. He thought uh, there's far too, too few of us, and, and that's why Buddhism would fail, is because there wasn't enough people to be uh, an example. But at the heart of all this, if you want to think of the Ubermensch or the archetype of the Christ or even Christ himself, right? When asked what's most important is to love God. And I mean, that's to love all creation. That's to love everything. You can be a pan and theist and, and love God certainly very easily. So you could be a, an absolutely certain atheist and still still love all of creation, love nature, love your lot, Amor Fate, right? But he also said to love thy neighbor as as you do yourself. And and here's where the mistake falls. I've talked about this in Buddhism that no Asian probably could conceive of the level of self-contempt the Westerner has, self-loathing. So they forget that. And when they talk about, uh, when they talk about, uh, you know, love your neighbor as you love thyself, that's a problem because most people don't love themselves properly. So that's a major problem, ain't it? So that's our first lesson. That's the imitation of the Christ. Like I told you, that's uh, Jung's, Jung's Red Book. It's it's uh, Nietzsche's uh, Thus Begs Zarathustra, the, the greatest self-help book written in the modern era, foundational to, to philosophy, foundational to psychology, but because there were those uh, funny national socialists that got in the way, he's developed a bit of a bad, bad reputation. But in reality, he tells us the exact same thing. Right? But Nietzsche understood how little faith we have in ourselves. When he said, there is a reason why we believe in a God, why we attribute uh, great accomplishments and great ideas to something or someone outside of ourselves. It's because we don't appreciate ourselves. We don't have faith in our potential. And that's what he, he intended us to use the Ubermensch as is is our moonshot goal. In Chinese, the, the characters for great harvest is uh, an individual standing with his arms held wide, which represents great. And harvest is a moon reaching, is a hand reaching for the moon, right? This moonshot goal. I know I harp on this stuff, but we seem to keep missing it. We don't have to 
we don't have to go crazy on this stuff. It's it's like Hemingway said, it's not honorable to be better than anyone else. It's only honorable to be better than your previous self. And that's what we're missing. We don't have enough respect for ourselves. I mean, imagine that. I, I make that joke often on Discord that uh, right, Confucius said better to uh, have people think you a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. It's it's so common that I see people holding. I'm not talking about uh, abhorrent views. I mean that's fine. You can have abhorrent views, but just just plain wrong. It's not even misunderstanding. It's just ignorant, uh, ignorant views. I've talked about this that the original Latin for stupid uh, intended to warn us. Uh, either you're in modern sense to traumatize to. Uh, stupefied uh, to see the truth or understand the truth or understand your error or it's willful ignorance for one reason or another you may simply not want to know the truth or you may simply not trust the source of the truth <laughs> there's so many reasons but as Nietzsche said worse than lies convictions right worse worse than lies right and so as a final aside, as Jung said, if, if what I used to hold to be error guides me better than what I hold as truth, then I will be guided by the error. My entire life I've been told that this environmentalism and this doom, but if you choose to look, you can see a lot of positive, right? I, I was listening to a book recently called, I think it's... Uh, yeah, it was the Anthropocene, I can't pronounce that word. It means the current era, reviewed, Anthropocene, reviewed. And in it, he makes these glaring errors talking about, uh, they warned us about carbon in the 70s and we failed to remediate, but I'm sorry, dude. That's, that's a complete misstatement of what happened uh, they may have warned you about it in the 70s, but they didn't fail because carbon levels have been dropping since the 70s. So that to me just broke the whole narrative, right? Same as, uh, I know it's, it's completely aside, but it's the same what shocked me is when he mentioned that he talked to doctors that sure, sugar is not great because he, he considers diet Dr. Pepper the, the beverage of the current era because it's so fake. <laughs> <laughs> Simmons is writing because he claims that sure, 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 sugar might be bad for us eventually if you have too much of it. But well, there's no issues with uh, artificial flavorings. This this book was just published, right? Never mind coloring. We know for a fact that the artificial flavorings and coloring are a problem, right? Uh, he mentions aspartame, the very one that's been studied for a while is a problem. Uh, Twenty years ago, if you mentioned that uh, fla uh, these artificial uh, sweeteners were bad, like my aunt, uh, she was adamant not to allow her kids to have these artificial sweeteners 20 plus years ago. Um, and she was right, but people made fun of her, right? I, I understood where she was coming from because artificial. Right, sure, there's lots of artificial in this world. Not all of it's bad for you, but I'm pretty certain the majority is not good for you. I mean, when we start 
rating things as grass, generally regarded as safe. That's not what I want. I want healthy stuff, right? So maybe they have listed uh, doomerism as grass, generally regarded as safe. But I don't see that. I've told you before, there's a million books on the idea that we need to be positive. Right, we highlight the negative too well, <laughs> naturally predisposed to highlight the negative. And so I argue, fake it till you make it. It sounds crazy because, I mean, I'm the type that I just, you know, not negative so much. I just have very little joy and empathy left because um, I've been put through the ringer for, for half a century. But I still have a tremendous amount of hope. And, and faith in the human creature. And it may be misplaced, but I've told you this before. My favorite quote, one of my favorite quotes, I got many, is from the movie Secondhand Lions, where um, Hub, played by Robert Duvall, talks about uh, things that we need to believe and, and not all things that we should believe uh, necessarily are true, but we should still believe them. That good will conquer evil. That love, true love, never dies. Right? There are universal truths. There are. Yeah. I'm seeing that now. And one of them is hope. One of them is trust. And it's a synonym to faith. It doesn't mean belief. It doesn't mean certainty. It means hope in the face of uncertainty. That's that cliche. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is action in the face, in spite of fear. And that is what hope is. That is what trust is. That is what faith is. It's, it's acting in the face of uncertainty. It's one of the oldest stories known to man of Job that he held to what he, he believed, what he trusted, what he was convinced, what he was committed to. And in the end, his holding true taught lessons to everyone involved. And I guess the only lesson for Job was just reinforcing this truth that we must keep the faith. We must carry our burden, remain hopeful, as Albert Camus, is so cliche, I apologize, but as Albert Camus said, you have to imagine Sisyphus happy. And this is what he means. He means he's heavily influenced by Nietzsche, so it's his eternal recurrence. Imagine if you were Sisyphus rolling a, a boulder up a mountain every day, all day, day after day, infinitum, forever. Over and over and over again. Are you going to get up as many people do and hate their life and hate their job and hate their spouse and hate this and hate themselves especially? Or are you going to get up in the morning and imagine Sisyphus happy where he finds his meaning in the boulder? Right? The lesson isn't simply to accept our lot, but it's also that throughout that space of time, that we consider our suffering. It's within that we can find our meaning. It's within we can find great moments, magical moments even. 
but only if we're looking for them. Because as I mean, I'm sorry, I know I'm so chatty, but I'll leave it with what Nietzsche said that we are uh, the evaluator, right? And and it's beautiful because literally, I I was speaking to a German uh, native, and he didn't recognize Schatzen, but he understood Schatz, this idea of something precious, something, you know, sweet. And that's what Schatzen is trying to get across. Nietzsche meant uh, we are the evaluators because we decide what's precious to us. We decide what is a treasure. We decide the value of things, evaluators. But we also decide the meaning of all things. As he said, he wrote Beyond Good and Evil because he felt uh, we missed his message in Zarathustra. And then he explained that it's beyond good and evil. Imagine all things are justified in love. Love transcends good and evil. And knowing that, that means we have to be guided by love. And that's trust. That's hope. That's what love is. Now, Hannah Arendt and Karen Armstrong, they both write about love, devotion, commitment, confidence. That's love. That's trust. That's hope. And I see so many people who claim they're striving for the love of environmentalism or for animals or for uh, even for faith. But I'm sorry. When I listen to many of these people preach, I mean, I'll use faith as an example. When I hear some of these extreme zealots for faith uh, argue the case for God rather than the case for uh, working on yourself and having trust and faith in the system and society, or even panentheism. I personally, if I were a preacher, if I were a minister that was preaching to a flock, I would love that people were at least not irreligious. If they were panentheists, I'd much rather have them than these toxic atheists. Because same as the religious zealots convinced me that mm, maybe there isn't a God because <laughs> would he let, would he let uh, such terrible examples uh, uh, represent him? But the same can be said about the atheists. There's a recent book uh, that either just came out or is coming out. I haven't gotten a copy of it yet. It's called Coming to Faith Through uh, Dawkins. And, and that's, I've told you this before, I've read Dawkins. I read some of Sam Harris. Um, uh, what's his name? The other guy. The British guy. Well-spoken. Hitchens, Christopher Hitchens. And uh, for the most part, they convinced me of faith. It's the opposite, right? Because all of their examples fail to convince, uh, but Dawkins is the worst because he ended uh, his God delusion with, well, we all know miracles happen, but what? No, that's why I'm reading an atheist uh, because I didn't believe in miracles, but okay, thanks for making me waste nine, ten hours reading a guy who misrepresented who he was, another closet believer who just doesn't want to admit that, you know, as William James a great psychologist, again, influenced by some of my favorite philosophers, but he also influenced many of our modern philosophers and psychiatrists, psychologists. He didn't, I'm kidding here, I'm being bombastic, but I hope you get what I mean. He didn't have the guts to publish this same truth. He, for years, pushed the idea of pragmatism, but in the end, 
he realized there needed to be something more. He called it radical empiricism. And it was published after his death. But he was writing it. He understood that there's a meta-being, right? The Gestalt idea. Uh, Reza Aslan states uh, that the whole reason for religion and God is because even as children, we realize there's something more than just the body. We're more than just the body, right? Almost like a dualist idea because we're too young to understand that, you know, it's, it's, it's a symbiosis, separate but, uh, right, embodied. So separate but uh, united, inseparable, separate but inseparable, I guess, in a sense, right? So it's this understanding of the gestalt of being is why we believe in religion, in God, is because even as children, we understand there is such a thing as a soul. But again, we fail. Because if we don't have hope in each other, if we don't have hope in the environment, if we don't have hope in our future, if we don't have hope that there's rational, intelligent human beings at the switch, right? this is an argument that goes back to the Russians and, and uh, atomic war right like there's stories that have come out since that yes there were rational intelligent people at the switch and when uh, mistakes happened or uh, loony birds came to be there was there was there was intelligent rational beings that stood up people with hope people with logic and reason right that if given an order that you know to be illegal, to be wrong, to be unjust, to be, be dangerous, that you would use arguably what I think is the proof of our meta-being, our minds, the greatest creation known to man and only known to man is, I think, the greatest computer, the greatest, right, with compute, it's the greatest uh, tool for prophecy. As uh, Carl Friston says, he thinks the mind is this predictive matrix. That's my words. Don't get mad at me for trying to explain it. He himself admits that he's terrible at explaining his, his theory. But it's simply this idea that the mind is this predictive matrix. Its job is to use its imagination, use memory, experience, um, use, I guess, uh, you know, imagination, intuition to predict what might come to help us. Uh, and we act as intermediary between reality through uh, experience firsthand. We inform the mind and the mind then adjusts its predictive matrix. But the problem lies... So many of us want to reshape our reality, deny the truth, and thus we live in illusion. In Sanskrit, we call that maya. I, I, someone asked this question before, right? Is reality real? Isn't it real? I, I actually uh, came to Yogacara, Tantric Buddhism, because of this idea. There's something in Buddhism called the... Uh, Prasangika Sotantrika quandary. Don't quote me on that. 
but you'll find it. Prasangika Sotantrika. And it's this idea, is the world real? Is it not? Is it illusion? Is it... Uh... And I fall somewhere in between. I think that's when things got real, when, when Madhyamaka and Yogacara blended together, and that's what I talk about. I mean, Chittamatra. It's a mind matrix, right? Uh, the mind only exists because we interact with the conventional reality. If it's illusion, fine. If it's real fine. But they're both true and untrue. This is the tetralemma in Greek, the chattiscoti in Sanskrit. It's Schrodinger's cat, right? I should do a 60-second uh, philosophy on that, right? It, it's a superposition. It's quantum physics, the idea that it's both a wave and a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, ah, my brain is not working this morning. I keep forgetting that whole thing. <sighs> but the truth is, is it? it's both. It's not one or the other, it's both, right? The tetralemma is maybe it's A, maybe it's B. Maybe it's both. Maybe the answer is beyond our understanding. Maybe it's beyond our question for now. Right? So it... it it boggles my mind that people walk around looking for certainty or they pretend to think they know for sure. I ran into this just the other day. Somebody was talking about IQ being genetic and, and what is it, Wilson, Wilson's Law or something like that. And I just chuckled because he was showing that he just wants to believe. He's not trying to learn from the lessons. And lo and behold, when you look this up, uh, there's a reason why it hasn't been studied for 10 years. It's because about 10 years ago, it was debunked, in a sense, because there's another law called the anti-Wilson law. Because they said that, yes, there seems to be some heritability to IQ, duh, but uh, the reverse seems true in old age. It only works for a predictive engine for children, adolescents, maybe. Well, that doesn't really help us all that much, does it? Because really, the science that we need is how does the IQ evolve? How does it blossom? How does it mature? Right? I think science is showing us we misunderstood that too. I mean, look at the U.S. military has proven we were wrong about language, right? Old people can learn a language. Or simply, uh, we've been seeing some improvement in the areas of dementia and Alzheimer's that there may be a way to, to stave this stuff off. It isn't a death sentence, as they say. It isn't uh, an absolute. Uh, it may be on a spectrum, right? if you don't remediate some of these problems through diet and lifestyle and whatever else might be coming down the, the pipe. I, I read an article just the other day that they may have developed a drug that lets you grow your teeth back. That would be awesome for me, I'll tell you, because uh, autoimmune just destroys your teeth, it seems. I didn't even know there was a connection until the last couple of years. And now there's actual science showing that uh, gingivitis and, and uh, gum health uh, is directly correlated to your, your, your teeth and how healthy they're going to be and how long they're going to survive. 
but gingivitis is directly connected to inflammation and, and uh, our immune system. But the fact that this is, this for decades was just ignored. And even to today, we tell people how important uh, dental health is, but we ignore that it's the gestalt of being. The reason why your dental health is important is because it can cause a raising of your uh, resting inflammation uh, levels. The reason why dental health is important is because, well, it's <laughs> desperately important. The pain in the mouth can be just unbearable to many people. That's even what the dental surgeon mentioned to me. He said he's seen big guys just brought to tears over just, you know, the, the, uh, the bone poking through the gums after an extraction. Right, because he says uh, the bone takes a while to uh, to flatten out. Right, sometimes it has high spots, and sometimes that can poke through the gum. Right, but here we are. Everything is treated in isolation, and I, and people talk about echo chambers. Gosh, our health and welfare is is so compartmentalized, right? Like, because think about it. You could be going. I mean, actually, the guy I was talking about earlier, Tom Satterley, he talked about going to multiple different psychiatrists. But are these psychiatrists talking to your physiotherapist? Are they talking to your doctor, your, your GP? Are they talking to your dentist? <laughs> right? But it, it blows my mind that that's all it takes. Because right? I actually experienced that with the teeth, believe it or not. I had one little piece poking through and it was it bothered me a lot. I thought it was quite painful. I, I found it quite annoying and it was super stressful because I thought it was what happened to me years ago. I had pieces left in my gums that took years to come out and boy, was it painful. It took well over a year to get one piece out. It was just a nightmare. Well, you know what I mean. It was really quite painful. So I thought that was going on. So I go to see the, the dentist and he breaks off the little piece. It was just a tiny little piece. And as soon as he took it off, what are you going to attribute to feeling better to? Are you going to attribute to him taking off? And that's what he said. It's like, maybe it looks like it's a tiny little piece. Didn't really take all that much off. But then I, in this week, so that was like last week. So this week I have... Uh, like, you know, a quarter inch of bone sticking through, right? Because it was a ridge and it was just the highest point of that ridge that was sticking through. Well, now that we've taken off that high point, now I got the whole ridge of the gum sticking through, of the tooth, the, the whatever, the bone, the jaw sticking through the gum. But the funny thing is, it's not bothering me. Really not even that painful. And what he said to me it was true. He said some people call and go, oh my God, I got this little thing. And I waited a little bit and it, it wouldn't go away. It was really quite a big piece. Thick, not tall. Uh, but it looks like he said uh, what he said was true because um, these pieces just seem to be coming off because it's nowhere near as high as it was yesterday. 
right? But the difference had to do with hope, had to do with trust, had to do with faith and belief, right? As soon as I found out that this was normal, I told you this about disease. It's a surprise to find out that it's, when you get diagnosed, it's, it's not finding out what you're fighting, which is what I thought when I finally got diagnosed. It wasn't that I found out what it was I was fighting. I knew my enemy. No, it was actually I found out I wasn't alone. Even with a rare disease of only 1% to 4% of the population, it meant there was other people out there. And I actually, when I finally figured out the disease, yes, there were groups. There wasn't a lot of groups years ago. And in fact, uh, I got shouted down in one, one particular group, a Facebook group, when I mentioned that I thought there was a, a connection to diet because I said, geez, my, my disease got so much better when I cut out the dairy or, you know, couple of examples like no there's no connection at all they freaked out but like that's one of the examples they used to say that was not a thing and since then is now part of the uh what do you call it protocol it's just a known thing that dairy right but that's what disgusts me i know why it's these proteins in dairy that are shared elsewhere that are an issue they're you know histamine or hormonal uh type uh effect but all they did was say no avoid dairy they didn't look at you know nightshades um, and then looking in within nightshades right what is dangerous which ones are the most uh, systematic no no they haven't bothered looking into that right so the doctors miss out on hope and they feel they feel powerless right and that's what they say that the doctors want more of these biologic medicines for these uh, inflammatory diseases because we just want more tools in the toolbox well, you missed your opportunity you should have said hey if dairy is an issue what could be the connective uh, string right so nightshades are a problem why what is it in nightshades that are causing inflammatory response? But they don't, right? The dentist should go, oh, wow, look at that. I should be telling my uh, clients, like if he wants, he'd be like, wow, I can make a lot more money with my hygienists if I just explain to people that getting a descaling, and no one ever told me this for 50 years, getting a descaling can actually help your gums heal thereby keeping your teeth and reducing your resting inflammatory level. No, nobody told me that. Not till I met uh, the husband of a dentist, a dental hygienist or whatever. The truth was told to me that you really only need to go and get this descaling done, you know, a couple times and then maintain it, say, with a water pick, right? But that would get these dentists so much business because instead of it coming in when stuff has gone sideways people will be there to maintain their health will be actually happy to go to the dentist right? I liken that to um, the military that interview Tom Satterley the, uh, the ex-Delta Force he had his uh, current wife talk about uh, their uh, charity that uh, they're tra- helping to treat uh, PTS uh, uh, post-traumatic stress Uh, And that's what is missed so often, 
this is guaranteed stuff. This is guaranteed for a soldier, certainly. But I think it's guaranteed for all of us. But look at how crappy Canada is. It's 2018, before they even recognized PTS as a, a serious concern, post-traumatic stress. And they haven't registered how much more damaging, uh, complex, or repeated post-traumatic stress can be. But when I mentioned to one of their therapists that I think the biggest mistake is they don't train the veterans and the families on the inevitability of trauma and how to head it off the pass, as it were. And I just got, uh, 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 really? You don't understand how a soldier is guaranteed to experience trauma in their career and how that is going to affect them and thereby affect the family. You don't understand that, but that is a 100% guarantee. It may not cripple them, may not take them out of service, but that being said, preparing them, protecting them, can keep them a better soldier for longer. This is why a gentleman who is a special operator for 20 years is rare. Most of these guys burn out long before that. And the only protocols they really had were to treat their PTS with depression and anxiety meds. Maybe even probably as far as antipsychotic meds, but the data, and I steal this from uh, not just from the data, but from, for example, uh, Sebastian Junger. Is it Junger? Sebastian Junger's uh, book, Tribe, where he talks about how uh, these pills don't work for, for the PTS, particularly the vets. You can't just give them. Uh, the meds for, you know, someone who's depressed. And we're finding out why, because really, uh, that shit doesn't work, right? Um, it might be mostly uh, placebo. Pardon my, uh, my bombasti, bombacity. I don't mean it doesn't work, but it doesn't work as, as we, we tried to convince people how it worked. I've talked about this before, that the proof of how reliant these doctors were on the placebo effect and uh, worried about the, uh, the reverse, that uh, people uh, would prevent it from working because they didn't trust in it. I think proves that the majority of the healing from those were placebo. And, and the reasoning I was told from doctors is, oh, well, we don't want to take it off our shelves because we have so few tools to treat. Well, no, dude, seriously. Then you need to find new tools. It's the same as chronic pain. For years, I refused opiates uh, for pain. Um, and there was nothing. There was nothing else. I, a couple of times, I was actually ignored and, and screwed over and given something that was uncommonly understood as as a non-opiate but it was an opiate and still to this day there's almost no alternative i mean most of the alternatives were accidentally uh, happened upon it seems not because they were looking for an opiate alternative right when they know that it's not meant for long term 
Well, I think that boils down to a lack of trust, a lack of hope, a lack of faith. These doctors don't believe that there is another option. But I think that is ridiculous because I've told you before about a, a drug that I use to get off of opiates called Kratom. And there is definitely something in there that could probably be used, right? It, it, it interacts with the same opiate receptor, but it is not the same. I mean, people will tell you otherwise. You'll get people from all over the plant, but trust me on this. I was on opiates for chronic pain um, for years, and then I was on Kratom for years. And I was not an, an addict, not an abuser, so I, I guess I didn't really develop a, a dependency problem with the opiates. With me, it just stopped working. It was actually making my disease worse, and, it, and you know, I was still quite, quite... Uh, quite uh, uncomfortable but this is what people don't understand pain being 80 percent psychological or psychosomatic or whatever you want to call it uh, malleable then it's hard for people to understand that uh, really technically opiates shouldn't be given for chronic pain because one you're going to be taking it long term and two i don't know how good that stuff is for seriously intense pain Right? Like arguably they practically put people in a coma to treat uh, intense pain with these drugs. But that's what I mean. The hope is not there. If science, if doctors, if society broadly understood the truth of opiates and had faith in our science, actually had faith in our science and society, then they would they would ask them to find an alternative that wasn't killing thousands of people annually but i digress once again my apologies it's it's all down to hope it's down to trust and if if you don't have it in you to ignore uh, as albert camus uh, did to ignore the fact that life is pretty pretty crappy well then you have to gaslight yourself you really do because Things will only get worse for you, right? Like, what is that? The serenity prayer. It's an interesting story about the guy who wrote it. But the idea is, grant me the power to accept the things I cannot change, right? It's absolutely ridiculous that if you know that this is the fact, this is the way it is, well, embrace them. It's Nietzsche's eternal return. Right? Live this life over again as if everything is ordered. Everything is requested. You're winning or you're learning. Because the alternative is you're losing and losing. There is no winning if you don't see the hope in the uncertainty. Because it's all we have is uncertainty. Right? Take it from a guy who literally has had, arguably, I've told you this before, uh, had it pretty hard done by, based on what some of these influencers and the stories they tell. Um, I've gone through probably three, four, five, six different influencers' experiences combined. I have multiple diseases, a horrible childhood, blah, 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 blah. But what I've come to realize is 
It's only made me appreciate. Like I told you before, Victor Frankl said that as a doctor, he was surprised to learn that when you're given as a patient or even as a doctor, as the story went, if you're given a, a diagnosis that you're not going to survive, it actually doesn't make you give up on life as they thought it would lead to. It actually makes you embrace life with uh, with with a zest that shocked him and his colleagues. Right, and that's what we have to do. Right, if we want to be the change, we have to be the agents for change, and that begins with what. Uh, Jesus said, he said, love thy neighbor as you love thyself. And would we really allow someone to treat their neighbor the way we treat ourselves? I argue absolutely not. I think we all deserve to be turned in for hate speech and uh, harassment against ourselves. Because there's nobody worse on this planet. than someone who, who doesn't understand that we're not talking about ignoring our, our, our failings. We're just admitting that we're humans. Augustine wrote about this, this idea that we're all sinners. Right? Uh, Carl Jung said this, until you accept the monster within, you can never be free of its influence. I mean, you'll never be free of its influence, but you can be the master instead of the passenger, right? But on that, I'll leave it. It's about hope and trust. It's as simple as that, right? I said it before. Karen Armstrong agrees with me. Just uh, actually Swami, uh, uh, Swami G uh, from New York, uh, Sarva Priyananda, agrees with me as well. You don't have to believe. Just start by doing. Doing it, uh, doing the rituals, doing the devotions uh, with full commitment uh, and confidence. And the benefits will follow. Belief isn't necessary. But devotion is. Otherwise, you don't get any of the benefits.